Good morning, everyone. And uh, may I welcome uh, my, uh, add my welcome uh, to Andrew Zellia. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open on page 1195 to follow our passage. That was 1 Timothy 5 verse 1 to 6 verse 2, page 1195. And for those listening to the recording, our Old Testament reading was Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 to 22. So it'd be worth reading both of those now, if you're able. Okay, uh, before looking at God's word together, let's spend some time in prayer to ask for his help. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for who you are, the creator and ruler of the universe. And thank you, Father, that even so, you have not left us sinners alone and without hope, but have spoken to us, revealed the truth to us, and shown us how to know, love, and obey you. In your mercy, Father, please may we be those who listen to you today, not because we deserve it, but because you are loving and gracious, kind and generous, and because you deserve our full obedience. May we be those who listen to what the Holy Spirit says to the church through your scriptures, and may your Holy Spirit stir us on to obey that which we hear. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. When we started our series on 1 Timothy back in April, I used an illustration from one of my favourite films, Gladiator. Um, So for today, I thought, well, let's try and do something different, a different theme. But try as I might, um, the main uh, main theme in our passage today is honour. It's honour. The Apostle Paul is instructing Timothy, whom he has appointed to oversee the local churches in the city of Ephesus, in how those churches should be run. Obviously, uh, Paul wants the churches to be faithful, and he wants them to be strong. And so, our title for today is Strength in Honour. That's picking up on the theme of strength and honour in the gladiator films, if you're not familiar with them. But our title is Strength in Honour. In our passage, Paul puts a huge emphasis on honouring the right people in the right way, so that the churches can be strong. But Paul also knows that in our eagerness to honour people rightly, well, we can sometimes miss the point and go a little too far. And so there are also some important warnings to keep us on track, so that we do not let honouring people misguide us into even worse errors. Now, this has always been a central teaching for the church, but I think, I don't know, I think it's fairly obvious how important it is for us now, as we start thinking about our new congregation, SMAC 3 in Ampang. How will SMAC 3 start its life as a congregation? There are some hard teachings in uh, in these verses. So, will SMAC 3 follow the non-negotiable instructions um, in this passage and be a strong church? Or, as SMAC, will we avoid this hard teaching? Will we compromise and find ourselves falling into the devil's schemes and dishonouring our Lord? Well, let's find out what these instructions are. Please do look at these verses as I give you a bit of a heads up of how we're going to look at the passage today. Not quite in order. Uh, We're actually going to start with verses 3 to 16, principles on honouring the needy. We'll then explore the important instructions uh, back in verses 1 and 2 of that chapter, chapter 5, and verses 17 to 15, honour for pastors. And finally, we'll examine the exhortation in the first few verses of chapter 6, honour your boss to glorify God. Verses 3 to 16, Principles for Honouring the Needy. Now, in the heart of KL, 
just off Dash Ramadeka, and in a big gleaming white building, it's not gleaming today because of the clouds, but on a nice sunny day in a gleaming white building, St. Mary's Cathedral is not exactly inconspicuous. It's large as life, and in a, in a city where there aren't very many obvious church buildings, it really stands out. And the great thing about that is, we get a large number of tourists during the week, and a lot of visitors on Sundays. But we also get a fair number of people coming along and asking for money. Undoubtedly, many of them are in genuine need. And I would hope you'd all feel compassion for them. But, quite simply, St. Mary's cannot afford to support everyone who asks. What on earth should we do? How would you deal with it if, it was, if the decision was down to you? Well, thank God, he's given us some timeless principles in, this, uh, in our passage today, in this section, that enable us to work that out. Three principles that, if applied faithfully to our situation, will enable us to make the godly decisions. The tricky thing is, though, Paul gives these timeless principles exclusively with regard to widows. Now, the reason is, widows are the ones who are amongst the most needy and vulnerable in the society of, of his day. It had always been that way, up to and beyond even Paul's time. And so God had great compassion on them. In our Old Testament reading, God describes himself as a defender of widows, of orphaners, orf- orphans, <laughs> and of sojourners. Um, sojourners, a bit of an odd word, um, foreign residents in Israel at that time. Deuteronomy 10, 17-18 For the Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And there are many other similar passages in the Old Testament we could have looked at. Widows were the neediest people in the ancient world, and God's people were to follow God in loving and caring for them. They were so needy because even in Paul's day, a woman's identity and welfare were determined by her husband if she was married, and her father if she was not. Now, it is a fantastic blessing to our world that women in our time and society can have education and careers. What is descriptive in biblical um, society is by no means what should be normative for ours now. But the sad truth is, in those days, if a married woman lost her husband, she was in a terrible position. She would have lost her income, her support, her position and place in society. She would have been in a desperate situation, and starvation would have been a real possibility. And that's why Paul devotes his principles on social action to widows. And our job today is to understand the principles God teaches us through the issue of widows in Ephesus, and apply them to KL today. So, our first principle comes from verses 3 and 4. If you could read with me. Honour widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, when Paul says truly widows, he means widows who are truly destitute, those without any family at all to support them. The word translated honour here can include uh, financial provision, as we see later on in the section on pastors. And verse 16 says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so it may care for those who are really widows. So the principle uh, is that the church should only provide for the truly destitute and it should not have to provide for um, those who can be supported by their families. 
We must not give those two who have a supporting family so that there will be enough money, time and energy to go to those who don't. Fairly simple. Also in today's world, uh, many have uh, income insurance which might cover them if they lose their job. And if you lose a loved one, you may receive life insurance or inherit some money. In that case, a person will not need as much support as others. Now that's not to say we're forbidden from helping out the needy people in, in the short term. When someone has just lost uh, their job or a loved one, of course we can help them materially, as well as the other acts of love and compassion that we should show them, especially on an individual level. For example, they might need help uh, paying the rent or bills or to buy food in the short term, and we should certainly be jumping to help them out. But for a church to promise long-term financial income to people who can be supported by other means, well, actually, that's not being loving towards those who later on suffer tragedy and have no one else to help them. We, the church, should not have unlimited supplies. But, what about you as an individual? Do you have family members who need your support? And how about those in your family who may need your support in the future? Are you preparing now to have the money to support them later on? And will you be prepared to give give it to them when the time comes? It's not, only, uh, it's not only to free up the church from helping uh, those without a family. It's also pleasing to God in itself. And not doing so is terrifying evidence of the insincerity of one's faith. Verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own households and to make some return for their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied his faith and is worse than an unbeliever. True Christians look after their family as much as they are able. Some cannot or struggle to because of circumstances beyond their control, for example, illness or collapse of a business or anything like that. But to neglect your family simply out of lack of compassion or not considering them, well, that is not the behaviour of a Christian. So, families should support each other, so the church is free to support the truly destitute. That's our first principle. Our second one is found in verses 9 to 12. That the church is only obligated to support its own, not everyone from the outside who seeks our help. Verses 9 to 12. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, their desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now we need to understand carefully the situation in Ephesus. Evidently, there was this thing called the role of widows, and those who were on it were guaranteed long-term support by the church. And the word translated faith at the end of verse 12 could be translated, um, especially in this context, as the word pledge, a vow or, or an oath. And given that that pledge would be abandoned, verse 12, if a younger woman were to remarry, well, it's fairly clear that the pledge was to remain single for whatever reason probably to be permanently on call to serve the church, although that's not made clear. And by the way, the word condemnation there is not eternal condemnation, um, but it's as in a rebuke or censure. So Paul is not, he's, he's not damning younger women for remarrying. In fact, he, um, he promotes that for those not on the roll later on. But if a woman on the roll did remarry, 
then that is serious because uh, breaking your pledge is sinful. That's a quick aside to explain that. But um, back to the situation in the city of Ephesus. Uh, you can just imagine the news, um, imagine what it's like when the news of this role gets out. The Christian church there, which is already known for its generosity in the city, has become a place where widows can be guaranteed long-term social security. And, and you can imagine the situation. Widows from all over the city would have been flocking to form a queue on the church's doorstep, and very understandably so. But that's a problem for the church. Is Timothy, ordered that they, um, is Timothy to order that they will be supported? No. Only the godly widows were entitled to be enrolled. Those who show the evidence of their faith through all those serving criteria we read in verses 9 and 10. And applying that to our own situation here today, only people, the only people entitled to our support are the needy who are committed core members of our own congregation. Now, it's perfectly right and proper to support others, outsiders. For example, it was a really good thing that we had a collection for the Myanmar cyclone relief from Smago. But that is something we have the freedom to do as a church, as long as it doesn't stop us from our primary tasks. Of encouraging each other in good works and persevering in faith. Of spreading the gospel and of providing for the needs of the destitute in our own midst. But the problem is, the world will often expect us to do a lot of other things, and sometimes they will even think they have the right to tell us what we should and should not spend our time on. I'm sure many of you have come across that yourself. I can remember once a few years ago, um, back in England, I was involved uh, occasionally in a group which uh, preached the gospel on the high street, um, and it would be there, someone would be at the front preaching, and the rest of us would form a little crowd uh, to encourage other people to, um, uh, to come along and listen and uh, try and start conversations. And um, often we get people obviously uh, finding offence at, at what was said, other people asking questions. And I remember one man, he came along, he listened and got very, very angry. He shouted, <laughs> practically at the top of his voice, Go to Africa and feed the starving children there, he shouted a few times before storming off in, in great anger. Now, feeding the suffering um, and starving deprived parts of the world is a wonderful thing to do. I thank God for the people who do, and I encourage us to be involved with that individually, supporting that. And the world will applaud you and love you if you do. But the world is not so happy when we preach the gospel. They might just think it's a waste of time, or they might think it's downright intolerant and offensive. But either way, like the man on our street outreach, the world would demand and put pressure um, for us to spend our energies on feeding people's bodies rather than saving their souls. But the fact is, in 20 billion years' time after the end of the world, there will be people in eternal joy and gladness with Jesus in heaven who suffered starvation and poverty on earth. And conversely, there will be those there will be people suffering eternal anguish and pain in hell, cut off from God's goodness, who enjoyed every physical comfort on earth. Read the parable of uh, Lazarus and the rich man, if you have any doubts on that. Now, as a church, we can help the needy in the world. I don't want to put you off that. In fact, as God's people, it's important that we do show God's love to others in practical ways. It's right to do good work and help others. But it's imperative that we save the best of our time, energy and money to do the things which Christ requires of us first and foremost. Remember, 
Our master is Jesus Christ, not the expectations of the world. In verses 13 to 15, our, first, our third principle um, in this section on um, unhealthy and needy. It's better for the young and healthy, the fit and able, to work as they'll be safer from the snares of Satan. It's better for the young and healthy to work as they'll be safer from the snares of Satan. In verse 9, Paul says that older widows who are truly destitute and have proven Christian faith may be enrolled. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, but at the start of verse 11, refuse to enroll younger widows. And then there are the verses regarding the, uh, the breaking of the pledge, which we've looked at already. And from verse 13, another reason why younger widows should be enrolled is they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their own households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Paul would rather have widows marry and start a new family than go in the social security role. Why? Is he just being a little bit uncharitable? No, it's because of the dangers of being idle. The career opportunities rightly open to women now were not available to women then. The only way for them not to be at risk of idleness was almost exclusively to remarry and have children. And so Paul strongly encourages them to take that opportunity. Rather than receiving the church's aid, it's much better that a young widow be supported by her new husband. Not so much to relieve the church as to protect her from the schemes of the devil. In verse 13, we read um, they, uh, that part, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. Friends, how true is the saying? Satan always finds work for idle hands and idle mouths to do. I can remember that particularly from uh, back at university. We had ridiculous 16-week-long university summer holidays. The things you muck around with and waste your time on uh, when you're idle. Uh, but it's a dangerous situation to be in because it's, uh, you, you, really, you really can become the devil's plaything. Whether it's men or women who are in need, giving them the money they need to live on, without having to work for it. Well, that might be a luxury in the physical world, but it can be a death sentence spiritually. It can lead us to straying after Satan, as in verse 15, living for ourselves rather than remaining faithful servants to Christ. The needy who are young and healthy, well, okay, they, they might need some um, immediate financial aid, but it's crucial we do not let them become dependent on handouts over the long term. Friends, that is not charity, it's cruelty. What they really need is help to get back on their feet and into some kind of work. Do not let them become idle and uh, easy prey for the devil. So, with these three principles uh, on honouring the needy, how will they be applied in our new church plants? And, and will they be adhered to back here in SMAC 1 or in SMAC 2? Will SMAC remain a church committed to proclaiming the gospel and protecting and providing for its own church family? Or will SMAC be sidelined, taken off track and become a glorified welfare agency? You see, if the devil cannot get us to believe in heresy, if he cannot get us to engage in some gross, horrific immorality, well, you know, he's more than happy to simply distract us from our missionary work. It might, not look, it might not look that heinous, but it's just as effective. 
If he can distract us with things that are perfectly good and loving in their own right. And that's why he's so successful at it. Social care. Political lobbying for the rights of Christians at home and abroad. Church socials or biblical tours to Israel and Greece are good, excellent things. Do them. But tragically, I know of churches which have become so obsessed with these things, these good things, that they've completely forgotten and neglected the essentials. The three things Christ wants us, the, the, the things Christ wants us to do, for example, encouraging each other biblically, spreading the gospel faithfully, and supporting our own destitute materially. So, smackers, be prepared for the diversions the devil may send. Be aware and commit yourself to fighting wholeheartedly for the essentials. Honour the needy within these guidelines and smack will be a strong church for God. Our first set of instructions, honour honor the needy. Our second group of instructions are for pastors um, and start in verses 17 to 15. We'll start with that and then go back to the first two uh, verses of the chapter as well. Honour for pastors is our second point. Honour for pastors, both the honour due to them and that they show to others. Verses 17 to 18. Let the rulers who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labourer deserves his wages. Okay, so imagine an ox, a great big beast of burden, hard at work in the fields, it has a yoke on its shoulders, putting a big heavy plough behind it, and it's been trudging in the fields all day, from before dawn probably. The poor beast is exhausted and starving in the midday sun. You wouldn't begrudge it munching some of the corn on the job, would you? A little bit of a nibble here and there. And in fact, God commanded that oxen be allowed to do that. Uh, that's commanded in that uh, verse quoted in, our, in, our, um, in 1 Timothy from Deuteronomy. Well, if you wouldn't begrudge a poor ox eating, make sure you pay your pastor. I'm sure, love and, I'm sure Andrew loves the fact Paul has compared him to an ox. Being a pastor is hard, grueling work. And actually, one of the greatest privileges, in my opinion, of being an apprentice here at SMAC is seeing a pastor hard at work without having to do nearly quite the amount of work he does. So trust me, having spent the best part of the last 11 months on team at SMAC, being Pastor Andrew is very, very, very hard work. Please don't get me wrong, Andrew loves his job, he does it willingly and gladly because he loves you and he loves serving you. But it's hard work and he deserves to get paid. When I go to a restaurant, I pay for my food. You pay for the taxes for your kids' education or maybe they're not exactly as cheap school fees. If that is the case, how much more are our pastors worthy of our money? Those pastors who, verse 17, rule well that, well, they labour long and hard, week in, week out, to feed us spiritually. They toil to give us what we need to live godly lives and persevere as Christians. Now, one of the great benefits of being an Anglican clergyman is that you are paid a regular income from the diocese. So the urgency of our giving as a congregation to meet a pastor's monthly needs are not so great, perhaps, as in other church organisations. And also, I really want to say, you, my friends at SMAC, are wonderfully generous people. You've been really kind and welcoming and generous to us apprentices during our time here. 
And I have little to no doubt that, first of all, you appreciate what Andrew does, and also you would, you would give what it takes to support Andrew and his family if he weren't in an Anglican church. But let me encourage you in one area. As Matt starts a new congregation in Ampang, and as the four of us apprentices quietly disappear over the next few months, the, uh, the full-time uh, staff to required work ratio is going to change quite a bit, quite a lot. And if there arise those who are suitable for full-time ministry and who are willing to give up some of their regular income uh, to put aside the time to labour at preaching and teaching, if that were the case, would you be willing to consider putting money towards their salary if they weren't paid by the diocese? Now, I don't know your financial situation. Such decisions are deeply personal ones, but would you be willing to consider it? God has ordained it that we get to heaven through persevering in faith. And he keeps us persevering to a considerable extent through the teaching and preaching of our pastors. They provide for us spiritually. And he's ordained it that we, their congregations, provide for them materially in their pay. Would you consider supporting new pastors? Pastoring God's people is hard work and good pastors deserve their pay. But showing honour to pastors can mean more than pay. It can also mean not entertaining unfounded allegations against them. In a fallen world and an imperfect church, sadly, it's hardly uncommon for people in church to turn against their pastor unfairly. And so Paul gives his very wise, if simple advice in verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul advocates a proper due diligence for such allegations. It's a standard procedure in the Old Testament law. Uh, the innocent should be protected from false accusations, so unfounded, untested, unilateral allegations should not be entertained. But what in a situation where the allegations are fair and the pastors are found guilty? Well, this is one of the examples where we shouldn't let honour go too far. We shouldn't let our honour for our pastors blind us from justice. Our second instruction regarding verse, uh, pastors is in verses 20 to 21, or verse 20, sorry. As for those who uh, persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Pastors who persist in sin need to be publicly rebuked. And sadly, this is one area in which a church often does no better than the world. A couple of years ago, back then, I read in the, uh, a tragic um, accounts in the newspaper of a church the bishop who ended up getting very drunk and making a public disgrace of himself. Not that surprising, you might say. Um, and uh, while the story might sound a bit funny, it's actually, uh, well, pretty tragic and wrong. Uh, the newspaper um, says that when he got home, he claimed uh, to know not, uh, not to know what happened that uh, night and that he got mugged, uh, but witnesses appeared to have filled in the blanks. I read uh, from the newspaper report, they say he, the bishop, ended up in Crucifix Lane, a largely deserted street next to railway arches near his cathedral at 9.30pm, where he clambered into a stranger's Mercedes and started throwing toys onto the road. Right. Um, Paul Sumter, the car's owner, was playing pool in Sushard Bar when he heard his vehicle alarm go off. He ran outside and saw this bishop, dressed in his robes and a smart black overcoat, sitting in the back seat, throwing out the toys. Mrs. Sumter said to him, What are you doing in my car? The bishop replied, I'm the bishop. It's what I do. 
Now, it's true, we all make mistakes, and the bishop might have got drunk by accident. I would not dare cast judgment on him in that. But 1 Timothy 3 says, an overseer should not be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. If an elected politician was found guilty of vote rigging, there'd be an outcry. His position would be untenable. Vote rigging is incompatible with democratic government. Simple. And so is drunkenness with being a pastor. And as with any sin, if the bishop was unrepentant on that matter, 1 Timothy 5 verse 20 says he should be publicly rebuked before all. As far as I'm aware, no such public rebuke took place. Maybe the bishop was repentant over the matter. But if not, he should be rebuked publicly. And that can be a a horribly difficult and hard thing to meet out on someone. We find it incredibly uncharitable and judgmental to do so. But it's essential, um, verse 20 I think, so that the rest may stand in fear. And because that didn't happen, other pastors, if tempted to get drunk or do far worse things, well, they're not going to have the fear of judgment to keep them from that sin. In fact, won't they just be further, even more tempted to do it, thinking they'll get away with it? That's an awful situation. And so Timothy is charged by Paul in verse 21, in the presence of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing with partiality. And in fact, it's even better not to get in that situation in the first place. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor taking part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, laying on of hands here means to set someone aside for partial service. That's how it's already been used in 4.14. So Timothy should be patient in testing and deciding who should be pastors. Otherwise, he will be partly to blame for their sins when they get into that leadership position. He will not be pure. Brothers and sisters, how much sin, how much pain, and how much damage and disgrace to the church could have been avoided if all potential pastors were properly tested and vetted before being put forward for ordination? Verses 24 to 25. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those uh, that are cannot remain hidden. It often takes a long time for people's weaknesses to show, and conversely, sometimes we don't spot the good aspects of someone's life or character straight away. Fairly obvious stuff, I know. But, when the pressure is on, it can be sorely tempted to take a few shortcuts. To appoint someone into partial ministry to, to meet a short-term need, when really, they're not quite the person for the job. Yes, the need for pastors, pastors is urgent, but... God is in control, he supplies the right people at the right time, and he's given us a priority for testing for godliness. Okay, lastly in this section, there are a few uh, instructions for Timothy personally in his ministry. And that's back in um, verses 1 to 2 of chapter 6. We see how Timothy must uh, honour the others in the church. Verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. You see, Timothy is a fairly young man, almost as young as Andrew. I don't know. We've just got an ongoing theme of picking on Andrew at every opportunity. Um, there would have been plenty of older men in the churches for which he was responsible, and no doubt some of them would have needed correcting. Now, I've never had to correct my own father, but I know I certainly wouldn't have to. And for those of you who are mothers and fathers, 
I'm sure he wouldn't take it very well if your son or daughter came up to you and said, Now look here, parking across two parking spaces is really not on. How dare you? You've been brought up better than to know that. There'll be no television for you tonight, you'll go straight to your room. That will simply be intolerable behaviour on the part of your child. And similarly, Timothy should not rebuke those older than him in the church. Rebuke there means a sharp, almost harsh turning off, as you would give your child who just said that to you. If we want to encourage our parents in something, we can and we should. But clearly we should do so with great honour and respect to them. And so Timothy and all pastors should do likewise when correcting and encouraging those older than them in the congregation. And they shouldn't look down on younger men or their peers either. They should treat them as equals, as brothers, and exactly the same respect should be shown to younger women, but, in addition, they should be treated with all purity. Now, personally, I don't have the privilege of having a biological sister. But it's fairly obvious to me, as it is to us all, that a young man treats his sister differently uh, than he might other young single ladies he knows. As a church leader, Timothy's position is one he might be tempted to abuse. So it's very important for church leaders to strive for purity in this area. And also, it's a responsibility for us too to pray for them in this area. Pray our church leaders will be kept from any inappropriate behaviour with women or men in the congregation. And while these instructions are essential for church leaders, well, to be frank, they're pretty applicable to us all, aren't they? So everyone, treat older Christians with respect, treat all others with equality. Do not abuse positions of authority you have, especially when it comes to dealings with people of the opposite sex. And don't lead them on unfairly. If you are pursuing marriage, there are godly and appropriate ways of doing so, and there are other ways. Go the godly way. Principles, or say, um, ways and uh, honour, honour for pastors. Our third point, point three. Uh, lastly, um, just in the last two verses, uh, first two verses of chapter six, there is another deeply important situation in which Christians must show honour um, and so be strong as a church, and that's in the workplace. Uh, so our third point: honour your boss to glorify God. Honour your boss to glorify God. Now I've got a question for you all. A few questions actually. Do you honestly think about it? Where do you spend most of your waking hours? Where do you spend most of your waking hours? What proportion of your waking time of your life is that? And who sees you during that time? Now, if you are employed, um, unless you happen to work for a church or other Christian organization, it's most likely that you spend the vast majority of your waking life with non-Christians in the workplace. In comparison, out of all my time in Malaysia, I've hardly really got to know any non-Christians at all. And those whom I have met have been through you, the people of Smack. You see, the way the good news of Jesus is going to get out from the church into the world is going to be through you, the members of the church living in the world. Yes, we do send missionaries to other parts of the world to be involved in frontline evangelism, but mostly by a huge proportion, the way people hear the gospel is through their friends. And if we are employed, the place we spend most of our time, again by a large proportion, is at work. 
the workplace is where non-Christians are most likely to come in contact with the gospel and be saved. But let me ask you another question. These workmates of yours, what kind of representation of Christ are they getting? What kind of a representation of the person of Jesus Christ are they getting? Verse 1 of chapter 6 was originally written to slaves, but the principle of honouring masters in the workplace today is the same. Let all who are under the yoke of slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honour, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. You see, the mistaken Christian might say something along these lines. The gospel is a message of freedom. I've been freed from sin and God's wrath. I'm a child of the living God. He's, he's going to judge everyone, even my boss who isn't a Christian. So what right does he or she have to tell me what to do? That's obscene. I'm going to live like the free man I am, and I do not need to honour my boss. Wrong. Okay, that Christian is a very mistaken one indeed. It's true, we have been freed from slavery to sin, but it is so that we may be slaves to righteousness instead, as it says in Romans 6. We are saved so that we may obey Christ, and it's his will for us to honour our earthly masters. Why is this? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So let me ask you, do people in your office or your classroom respect the name of Jesus Christ? Or do they mock Christianity and blaspheme Jesus' name? Do they seriously consider the gospel or do they dismiss it out of hand? Well, if they do mock Christ and ignore his message, it is sinful of them and it may be nothing to do with us. But before we point our fingers and wash our hands of all guilt, well, we should consider whether it might actually have a lot to do with us. Turning up late to your desk after your lunch break or gossiping about your boss or any other lack of honour and respect for him or her, well, that's going to go a long way in pushing people away from Christ. Please, tell your friends about your faith. Tell them about Jesus. That is the essential thing that will save people, along with prayer for the Spirit's work. But just make sure you're walking the walk, as well as talking the talk. Together, they make a powerful combination. Some of us, they have bosses who are fellow Christians, and what a privilege that is. To us, God says, verse 2, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve them all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. You see, a similarly mistaken Christian with a believing master might say, my boss is a Christian. I don't need to promote the gospel to her and my work. And she's my sister in Christ anyway, so she should treat me as an equal. But actually, in John 13, Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If your boss is a Christian, you should love her or him. And love, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And so if you love your boss, you will want what's best for them. And you will be glad that they can benefit from your good service. Remember, however much we may or may not love our Christian bosses, God loves them. They are beloved. So much so that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for them while they were still sinners, as us. If God did that much for them, how much more can we, and should we, honour them in our work? So whether your boss is a Christian or not, the next time you're tempted to turn up late for work, 
be slack with your deadlines, or perhaps be a little too messy with your boss, who is actually old enough to be your dad and several pay grades above you, or you're tempted to take any other liberty. Don't. Honour your boss. Remember that it is pleasing to God for you to honour them, and that it glorifies him to the world. It is a major way of people becoming Christians. So, honour your earthly boss to glorify God. In conclusion, I'm sure of that. Um, Honouring people, showing respect and providing for their real needs. Well, to be honest, sometimes that doesn't really seem like it should be right at the top of our agenda when it comes to working out what we should do in church life. There'd be many other things we think um, should be prioritised and that should be forgotten. But we ignore it to our peril. It was essential for Timothy in Ephesus and it's essential for Smack today. There has been so much growth from Smack. Um, maybe you may not see it today, um, but on a usual Sunday, uh, you can see um, huge crowds. And, uh, and certainly, even in the year I've been here, um, it's grown a large amount. And it's so very exciting to think about our church part in Ampang. I'm just gutted I won't be around at that time to see it. But the way that church part will grow and be strong is if you follow the commands God has given for church life, including those in today's passage. Will Smack be a church where honour is shown as it should be? Will Smack obey Christ in this way, getting its priorities right? Will Smack be strong to grow and proclaim Christ to a needy world? Let's pray that it would be. Let's pray. Dear Father God, Thank you so much for a church family that you've given us. Thank you for keeping us and meeting our spiritual needs through our brothers and sisters at SMAC. And thank you that you provide uh, for, for desperate material help uh, through the church as well. Father, where we have failed in the, in the matters of honour, please convict us. Uh, please forgive us and please change us. And please help us individually and as a church to think through what we should do put this into action. And particularly, Lord, we pray that Smack 3 uh, would start and continue as a faithful church, showing the right honour to the right people in the right way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.